This past Sunday, Palm Sunday, we began a three-part study on the cross of Christ. But instead of turning, as one might expect, to one of the Gospels or to some other New Testament book, we turned instead to the Old Testament, to the 22nd Psalm, which was written several centuries before crucifixion even appeared as a form of execution, and nearly 1,000 years before Jesus even walked this earth. And yet we find that in this passage, David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, prophesied what is the most detailed and graphic portrayal of the events of the cross to be found anywhere in Holy Scripture. But what makes this passage so unique, what renders it such a treasure, is that it is written from the first person point of view. In other words... What is spoken in this psalm are the words of our crucified Lord. These words take us inside the mind and the heart of Christ during His terrible ordeal on the cross. The thoughts that we read in this psalm are His thoughts. The feelings expressed are His feelings. The events described are written from the perspective of Jesus as He hung upon the cross and made atonement For our sins. That's why Psalm 22 is such a precious gift to the church. It is as if we are able to get inside the mind and the heart of Jesus as he made atonement and purchased our salvation. Nowhere else in all of Scripture are we allowed to relive the terrible events of the cross in such detail and with such intimacy and raw emotion as we are in this 22nd psalm. It reminds me of the old spiritual which asks, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? And the words of Psalm 22 are as close as we can come to being there when the Lord of glory was crucified. And my prayer this evening has been and continues to be that as we look upon the cross in all of its blazing, devastating glory, is that it would cause us to tremble. I remind you of the words of Charles Spurgeon, which I gave to you this past Sunday, in which he said that we should read Psalm 22 reverently, putting off our shoes from off our feet, as Moses did at the burning bush, for if there be holy ground anywhere in Scripture, it is in this psalm. On Sunday, we surveyed the first three stages of Christ's sufferings in Psalm 22, Exploring the separation, the consolation, and the humiliation of the cross. Tonight we come to the fourth stage, beginning in verse 9, which may be described by the word meditation. This is the meditation of Christ while upon the cross. Beginning in verse 9, he says, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. Upon you was I cast from my birth. 
and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Earlier in verses 3 to 5, Jesus remembered God's faithfulness to his covenant people, Israel. And now in verses 9 and 10, Jesus meditates upon God's faithfulness to him personally. But the logic is the same in both instances. God has been faithful before. He's been faithful up to now. And He will be faithful again. Look at the very first word in verse 9. In the ESV it is yet. In the King James it is but. And that little particle is a transitional word that ties the thought of verse 9 back to verse 8. So you remember in verse 8 what the mockers of Christ, the chief priests, the, the scribes, the elders, even the Roman soldiers, those who were at the feet of Christ as he hung upon the cross, they were saying to him, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And you can hear their words fairly dripping with sarcasm. For he delights in him. And in their minds they're thinking, surely he does not, or else he would not be up upon that cross. For God blesses those that he is pleased with, and he curses those whom he hates. And to be hung upon the cross, as we all know from the law of Moses, is to die a cursed death. But now in verse 9, Jesus remembers that God does delight in him. You recall the words of God to Jesus upon the occasion of his baptism. When the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove. And a voice spoke from heaven saying to him, you are my beloved son. And in you I am well pleased. God does delight in his son whom the crowds mocked. So Jesus thinks... Yet you are he who took me from the womb. But not only does God delight in Jesus, God has been faithful in the past to deliver Jesus and to sustain Jesus. So he remembers the occasion of his birth. He remembers how God brought Joseph and Mary to that appointed place, to Bethlehem, the city of David, at the appointed time. He remembers how the glory of God shone brilliantly as His birth was announced by the multitude of the heavenly host. He remembers how God, like a proud father, showed off the glory of His newborn Son and wanted all to come and to see what He had wrought. He remembered how God delivered Him from the hand of the wicked king Herod who was intent upon destroying Him while He was yet in His infancy. He remembers how from his childhood he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And I don't know about you, but I smile at the thought of God listening to the prayers of his beloved son while in his humanity he was four years old or eight years old or twelve years old. God was near to his son from birth and he would draw near to him again. And so upon the cross, in the darkness of those hours between noon and 3 p.m., 
When darkness swallowed that hill outside of Golgotha and the Son of God hung there and God had placed the sins of His people upon the shoulders of His Son and had abandoned Him and was pouring out His wrath upon Him in the darkness of the cross, Jesus meditated upon the faithfulness of God to Him personally. He meditated upon how God's favor had been on Him from His mother's womb. He meditated upon how God had delivered him in times of trouble and had sustained him in times of weariness. God had been faithful to him throughout his life, Jesus thought. And so surely he would remain faithful to him now. And so in the darkness of the cross, Jesus meditated upon God's faithfulness, past and future. And he was once again comforted. Which brings us to the fifth stage where we will spend the majority of our time this evening. And the only word to describe what is portrayed in this stage, verses 11 to 18, is the word devastation. This section is perhaps the most striking and poignant section in the entire psalm. As it graphically portrays the extremity of the physical sufferings endured by Jesus Christ upon the cross. In the first stage this past Sunday, I I made the point that the primary suffering which Jesus undertook at the cross was not physical in nature, but rather was spiritual. When Jesus sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane and, and asked and pleaded and begged with the Father, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. That cup of wrath that he had in mind was not Ultimately, the nails and the cross and the whip and the scourge and the crown of thorns, but rather was the terror and the anguish of a soul that is separated from God. A soul that is forsaken and accursed and struck down beneath the full weight of God's wrath against sin. That's what Jesus feared most. That is the cup that he begged the Father to take from him, yet said, not what I will, but your will be done. Now, while that is a very crucial point to grasp, that the atonement is not in its fundamental essence about the physical sufferings of Christ, but about the outpouring of God's wrath and the forsakenness, the utter forsakenness that is hell which Jesus endured upon the cross. I in no way want to diminish the physical torment endured by the captain of our salvation. The Lord hurt and He hurt fiercely upon the cross. The pain which he experienced in his body throughout his passion was beyond compare. Never has a man suffered the way he suffered. And it is to that physical suffering that we now turn. Verse 11 foreshadows what is to come. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Once again, Jesus speaks from that place of utter forsakenness which he is now experiencing. 
in his suffering, he desperately pleads with God to draw near to him once more, to deliver him from the trouble that is now surrounding him. He has no one to help. There's none to help. Jesus is utterly alone. All of his disciples have abandoned him. They have fled in fear. One has betrayed him. Another, his most ardent follower and his closest friend, Peter, has denied him three times. Denied three times that he even knew him. All the rest have cowered in fear and fled in panic. Just as it is written, the shepherd was struck and the sheep were scattered. All have deserted him. None have stayed by his side. And there in that midday darkness, naked and exposed and nailed to the cross, Jesus is utterly alone. And as he looks down, he sees the predators beginning to draw near. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and a roaring lion. David, in verses 12 and 13, utilizes two very powerful word pictures to describe what Jesus is experiencing. First, he refers to his tormentors as strong bulls of Bashan. Bashan is a high plateau east of Galilee. It is known today as the Golan Heights. And it is famous for its rich pastures and fertile fields. And it is because of this regular rainfall and lush vegetation that Bashan produced large herds of well-fed cattle. So Jesus pictures himself alone and defenseless and surrounded by huge, furious, ill-tempered bulls who are stomping their hooves and snorting and readying themselves for the charge. It is not hard to imagine the Roman soldiers swarming about Jesus, huge and armored and pointing sharp spears and swords. The second image is that of a ravening and roaring lion who has opened its mouth wide and is waiting to devour. It is interesting to note that David compares these tormentors to wild beasts because that is exactly how the depraved crowd which called for his blood and the sadistic soldiers that eagerly spilled his blood were acting. The tormentors of Christ, the soldiers, the chief priests, the elders, the crowd, they were on that day no better than a pack of predatory beasts that smell blood in the water and begin to attack their prey with a frenzied aggression. Verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. Jesus' attention now turns from his attackers to his own condition. And he mentions two aspects, his physical sufferings, And his emotional torment. As to his physical condition, he says that he is poured out like water, which is a reference to the draining of his physical strength and energy. By this point in time, on Good Friday, Jesus had endured more than 15 consecutive hours of beatings, trials, scourging, tortures, and humiliation. Think of that 15 hours. 
hours without a break. And that is after the emotional strain of the night before of Judas's betrayal and the last supper with his friends with the cloud of the, of the crucifixion hanging over that entire evening. The agonized prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane when he, when he prayed with such an intensity and anguish that the capillaries under his skin dilated and burst and caused blood to escape through the pores of his skin and to mingle with his sweat and fall to the ground. If you combine the physical pain with the toll that extreme sorrow and emotional anguish takes upon the body, you feel tired just reading these words. I am poured out like water, and all of my bones are out of joint. Some say that this pouring out like water refers to the loss of blood. But whatever the case, the image calls to mind the pouring out of a drink offering in order to satisfy God's wrath against sin, and that's exactly what it was. In addition, the text says that all his bones were out of joint. It is quite likely that the Lord's shoulders would have been dislocated in the process of crucifixion as his arms were stretched across the wooden beam, nailed in an unnatural position to the wood, and then forced hour after hour, minute after minute, to draw his chest cavity up in order to take in just another gasping breath. And then the verse turns to the Lord's emotional condition. He says that his heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. The overwhelming force of emotional strain threatened to burst his heart within him. Just think of that. If the anticipation of the atonement caused Jesus to sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, Can you imagine what the emotional trauma of the actual event produced? The sorrow, the shame, the separation, the humiliation, the fear, the pain, all swirling together in an emotional maelstrom that threatened to break the heart of the Son of God. John Gill once wrote that if the heart of Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah, melted Before it. What heart can endure. When God deals with it in his wrath. Verse 15. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me. In the dust of death. The physical anguish. The incessant bleeding. The imminence of death. Had sapped all of our Lord's strength. And because of this, he was subjected to an extreme thirst, a fact to which the Gospel of John attests and science validates. When people are being drained, when the life and the blood and the fluids are draining out of their body unto death, they are thirsty as they have never been before. And so Jesus says upon the cross some of his last words, I thirst. And notice carefully the wording of that last phrase in verse 15. You lay me in the dust of death. Who's he talking about? 
Even though the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the elders of the Jews had tried him and handed him over to the Romans to be executed, they were not the ones who took Jesus' life. And even though Pilate had cowardly submitted to the demands of the crowd and ordered that he be crucified in order to appease the Jews, it was not Pilate who took Jesus' life. And even though the Roman soldiers had viciously scourged him and brutally tortured him and maliciously mocked him and callously crucified him, it was not them who took the life of Jesus. Then who did? Who killed Jesus? And the fact is that you cannot understand the atonement. You cannot understand the weight of your sin. And you cannot understand the holiness and the justice of God until you come to the realization that it was God. God who killed Jesus. God the Father was the one who laid Jesus Christ, His Son, in the dust of death. God poured out His wrath upon Jesus and took His life in order to provide atonement for our sins. According to the purpose of His eternal will, God the Father laid the sin of man upon the shoulders of the Son of God and then He slew Him as a lamb to the slaughter. Isaiah wrote that the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Verse 16. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Now adding to the beastly imagery already used of bulls and lions, David employs the image of dogs. And do not think of the family pet that you have at home. In that day, dogs were mangy, ill-tempered, vicious, disease-carrying scavengers who frequented graveyards and trash heaps. And so in the thoughts of Jesus, the evildoers, the wicked men who surrounded the cross, they were like wild, scavenging dogs drawn to the stench of death. And then we come to this phrase, they have pierced my hands and feet, which is an undeniable reference to crucifixion. If it does not refer to the death of the cross, I have no earthly idea to what it could refer. I have a book on my shelf that many of you may be familiar with. It's called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. And in it, Strobel who is a former journalist with the Chicago Tribune, examines the historical evidence for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus from various angles while interviewing a variety of experts. And there is one particular chapter in the book entitled, The Medical Evidence, in which Strobel interviews Dr. Alexander Metherell, who is a research scientist with not one but two doctorates, one in medicine and one in engineering. And in this chapter, Dr. Metherell discusses the physical trauma suffered by victims of crucifixion, and he does so in rather chilling detail, dealing specifically with the issue of the piercing of the hands and feet. And so in order that we may get a glimpse, a taste of the agony suffered by our Lord on our behalf, I want to relate to you just a portion of that interview. Dr. Metherell states, quote, the Romans used spikes that were five to seven inches long and tapered to a sharp point. 
They were driven through the wrists. And it's important to understand that the nail would go through the place where the median nerve runs. This is the largest nerve going out to the hand and it would be crushed by the nail that was being pounded in. Picture, if you will, taking a pair of pliers and squeezing and crushing that nerve. The effect would be similar to what Jesus experienced. The pain was absolutely unbearable. In fact, it was literally beyond words to describe. They had to invent a new word. Excruciating. Literally, excruciating means out of the cross. Ex, out from, and crux, cross. Think of that. They needed to create a new word because there was nothing in their language that could describe the intense anguish caused during crucifixion. End quote. Listen, beloved, when the gospel says that Christ died for our sins, I want you to know that that word died is an incredibly heavy word. Jesus not only died, he died the most excruciating death known to man. And he did so in the place of sinners like you and me. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. Once again, we get a vivid picture of the mixture of pain and shame. I can count all of my bones refers to the acute physical pain which Jesus felt. His body ached to such a degree that he felt as if he could count every single bone in his body. Add to that the shame and the embarrassment of being naked and exposed in front of a large crowd of men and women and even his own mother. It's prompted Spurgeon to write that the first Adam made us all naked and therefore the second Adam became naked that he might clothe our naked souls. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. That the Roman soldiers divided his garments and cast lots for his clothing is attested in all four Gospels. The soldiers literally gambled at the foot of the cross as the Savior of the world made atonement for sins. Such is the wretchedness of man for which Christ died. I thought that I would close this Good Friday evening by reading to you a page from John Bunyan's classic allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress. By this point in the story, the main character, whose name is Christian, has been on his journey. His journey is an allegory of the Christian life that is relatable to every one of our stories if we are in Christ. That's why Bunyan called him what he did. So in this story and by this point, Christian has been on his journey of escape from the city of destruction and his pilgrimage to the celestial city for some time. Bearing this 
this heavy burden of sin on his back. He has this this burden attached to his back and and nothing that he attempts, nothing that he tries, no striving, no effort, no, no help of man of any kind can remove the burden from his back and it weighs him down every step of his journey. And thus far he has persevered with the burden on his back through the slew of despond. He has passed through the straight and narrow gate. He has quaked in terror beneath the thunders of Sinai. And he has learned invaluable truth in the house of interpreter. And that is where we pick up on Christian's journey. Bunyan writes, Now I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall. And that wall was called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came to a place somewhat ascending, and he sat upon that place, or there sat upon that place, a cross, and a little below in the bottom, a sepulcher or a grave. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosed from off off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble and so continued to do so till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and light and said with a merry heart, He hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then he stood still a while to look and to wonder, for it was very surprising to him, note this, it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked, therefore, and looked again, even till the springs that were in his head sent waters down his cheeks. Now as he stood looking and weeping, behold, three shining ones came to him and saluted him with, Peace be to thee. So the first said to him, Thy sins be forgiven thee. The second stripped him of his rags and clothed him with change of raiment. The third also set a mark on his forehead and gave him a roll with a seal upon it, which he bade him look on as he ran, and that he should give it in at the celestial gate. Then Christian gave three leaps for joy and went on singing. Thus far I did come, laden with my sin. Nor could aught ease the grief that I was in. Till I came hither, what a place is this? Must here be the beginning of all my bliss? Must here the burden fall from off my back? Must here the strings that bound it to me crack? Blessed cross, blessed grave, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. Tonight, there are some of you who came in bearing burdens of sin upon your back. In fact, I dare say that all of us know what it is to be weighed down with a load of sin that we cannot remove. And I invite you this Good Friday evening, as I have sought to paint the picture of the cross 
with words of Scripture and to hold it up before you in all of its splendor and devastating glory. I invite you to stand still a while, to look and to wonder that the very sight of the cross should ease you of the burden of your sin. So I bid you, look to the cross. Look to the cross and feel the burden fall from off your back and tumble down the hill and fall into the grave, never to be seen again. Look at the cross and look again till the springs that are in your head send waters down your cheeks. Look to the cross and wonder.